And this morning I got up and I said, I don't know that I can get through all this. We have 68 verses to do this morning. And most of you who've been around any length of time know that sometimes I can't get through two verses, much less 68. So we are going to launch into this and we will see where we end up. That also means I may be stumbling a little bit as I'm trying to think on the fly of what to now bring out that I wasn't going to bring out, but now I may have time because we're going to have to finish this next week. I just said it's, it's not right to try and rush it that fast. This morning, we get an introduction to Stephen. Stephen is the first martyr. There's only a very short place he occurs in Scripture, but what an incredible life and ministry that this man had. Now, we met him actually last week in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. He is one of the seven that are chosen to help with the distribution of uh, food and meet the needs of the widows in Jerusalem. And he is specifically marked in that passage as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And this morning as we see his ministry, we're going to see powerfully filled with the Spirit and with wisdom and a great faith, bold in his faith. We're going to see this displayed even in the midst of what he knows could be very severe persecution. One writer commented, and I agree with him, if Stephen had not been martyred, we probably would be reading a lot of epistles by Stephen because his character is the same that we eventually find in the Apostle Paul. This man is bold. He goes into places other people would fear to tread. He doesn't mince words. He is gracious. We're going to see that as well. But he is bold in his witness for Christ. He never backs down. In fact, at the end of the chapter, we're introduced to Paul. And I have to think that Luke, as he's writing this, introduces Stephen. He's martyred. And at the end of it, he introduces to Paul, who's going to carry on the ministry that Stephen had. But what a powerful impact this man had, though in reality a very short time frame for his ministry. And we'll talk more about that impact when we get to Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul. Now, recall at this time, what's going on in the early church is they're facing rising persecution. The chief priests, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin are now reacting negatively to the preaching of the gospel. The apostles have been flogged for proclaiming Christ. Uh, That was back in uh, chapter 4. There has been some internal dissension within the church. Sin has risen. It's been dealt with. Uh, Last week we talked about the fact that church was growing so fast that just the logistics of it, the apostles couldn't keep up with it all. There were so many people and so many needs. And so there was dissension starting. Faction was starting to develop between the Hellenistic Jews and those who were native-born right in uh, the Jerusalem or Judean area. There was this contention. The apostles dealt with it. They dealt with it very effectively, efficiently, calling on the congregation to find among themselves seven men who meet qualifications of being full of wisdom in the Spirit. And they then appointed those men to take care of these needs. So we see structure developing in the church. The church is now quieted down. The dissension's not there. They're working again in unity. And the church is growing still. It's rapidly growing. Last week we pointed out verse 6, chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. So much so, look at this last phrase in verse 7, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. This is a fantastic time in the church, even with the religious rulers reacting negatively. How exciting it is to 
see it grow so rapidly. And then seeing those that you had, if you were a Jew and you were going in and offering your sacrifices, these men that had led, they are now part of that same body of faith. I like the way that Luke had put it here, that they became obedient to the faith. Before the priests were obedient to the law of Moses and offering the sacrifices in the proper manner on behalf of the people and all the rest, now they're obedient to Christ. Their allegiance has shifted. So the church continues. It's growing in large numbers. Priests are coming. It's bold. And Stephen is one of the men who is at the forefront of declaring Christ. Verses 8 through 10 tell us about his ministry and its effectiveness. Read along there with me, if you will. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some of the men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some Cilician in Asia, they rose up and they argued with Stephen. And yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now these verses tell us, first of all, that Stephen is full of grace and power. These are the things that marked him. And really, they're the same things that mark the apostles. Grace and power. We find in terms of power that Stephen is doing the very same things that the apostles were doing. Signs and wonders. And accompanying that was the grace of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. A message of hope. They always go together. In fact, I need to point out that the signs and wonders are for the purpose of authenticating the message being given. We find that Jesus gives signs and wonders. You'll find that throughout the Gospels, always accompanied by him declaring something about himself or uh, declaring the way to heaven. But we find the apostles specifically do signs and wonders. Acts 2.43, we've already seen that. Acts 5.12, we've already seen that. And then here in Acts 6.8, their apostles are doing signs and wonders. Then Stephen here in Acts 6.8, he is also doing it. In Acts 8.6, a couple chapters away, we're going to find Philip, also one of the seven. He is doing signs and wonders. Then in Acts 14.3 and 15.12, Paul and Barnabas are doing signs and wonders. And then the epistles, Paul specifically mentions he had been doing this, Romans 15.19 and 2 Corinthians 12.12. 12. But every single one of those passages, you go look them up, you're going to find accompanying it was a declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The signs and wonders for the purpose of authenticating the message that was being proclaimed. So boldness, power, grace being extended. And so Stephen, full of grace, is proclaiming Christ. A ministry of hope. Hope not as a wish, but a confident assurance of the promises of God. It also tells us that the manner of his speaking was not harsh or obnoxious. It was gracious. There are people who proclaim the gospel, but they can, be, they can be obnoxious. You might have run into those. Maybe before you became a Christian yourself, you ran into one and they turned you off to Christ. We're never to be that way. Full of grace. Extending mercy. Extending a wonderful gift that's not deserved. We extend grace. And that's what Stephen was doing. Now, I think it is safe to assume here that the effectiveness of Stephen struck fear in the hearts of those who were Jewish traditionalists. They clearly recognized that this rapid growth of the church, the great number of priests who also were becoming followers of Jesus Christ, means there is a real threat to their traditional practice of Judaism. This is real to them. 
What is going to happen to worship in the temple if the priests are turning to Christ? What's going to happen to Judaism itself if all the people are rapidly turning to Jesus, whom we think was a blasphemer? Verse 9 tells us the reactions of some of these in rising up to argue with Stephen. Now, the synagogue of the freedmen, which he talks about here, is related to the descendants of Jewish prisoners who had been captured by Pompey in 63 BC. They'd been captured different places. They were taken to Rome and uh, basically made slaves. Now, over time, they were freed, hence freedmen, or uh, some translations I think might have libertine. They were freed, so they took joy in that, as you would too if you had been captured and made a slave, and now you're free. You'd be happy about it too, right? So they're freed. They established a colony in Rome on the Tiberus River. Now, eventually, some of these had come back to Jerusalem, immigrated back, and they established synagogues. Now, I say synagogues plural because the uh, Talmud tells us there probably were about 480 synagogues in Jerusalem at this time. See, why would you need synagogues when you got the temple? Synagogues were established during the period of captivity. They would be a place where a, a smaller group of people would meet for reading of the scripture, for prayer, for worship. Uh, we would say it would be very similar to like a, a local chapel or a church. Smaller group all meeting together for that. There was a lot of them. And when we look at where these folks are specifically mentioned, there's a Cyrenian. Cyrenians, that was a capital city, a coastal city in what is now Libya. Alexandria is a coastal port city in Egypt. So that's both North Africa. Then there are those from Cilicia and from Asia. Those are both provinces of what is now modern-day Turkey. There are cultural differences. There is language differences. So it's it's would appear here that he's talking about more than one synagogue. But they were so-called the synagogue of the freedmen. These are Hellenistic Jews. Jews not born in Jerusalem or Judea. They came from outside. And so Luke is referring to these are the ones that are standing up and arguing with Stephen. Now, Stephen is a Greek name. It's not a Hebrew name. It's a Greek name. And it's possible, and this is speculation because it, the text doesn't tell us enough, but it's possible he be, might have been a Hellenistic Jew himself, may have been from one of these areas, and he may have actually been one of those who was part of one of these synagogues. That's speculation. But he's now arguing for faith in Jesus Christ. They stand up and they argue with him. Now, let me point out that the word argue here, so zetao, should be understood in the, the, the sense of debate, not as I'm angry at you and I'm you know, mouthing off and then you're mouthing off back and you're not communicating. This is more like formal debate, point, counterpoint, formal arguments as in debate, as in presenting my case for why I believe what I'm believing and they're presenting their case. It's possible that Stephen is actually going into those synagogues and proclaiming this. Where does Paul go in the epistles and he's on his missionary journeys? Where does he go first? The synagogues. Stephen was probably doing the same thing. Going into the very synagogues because he wants his fellow Jews to understand that the Messiah has come. Turn and put your faith in him. It has been fulfilled. The law is fulfilled in him. And he's bringing, here's the case. Much like uh, Christ himself did with those on the road of Emmaus, going back to the Old Testament and explaining it all, here is why he is the Messiah. Yes, we know you were confused. Here is why he is that. And he's powerful in this. And so they're debating back and forth and presenting it. And 
Stephen has been given such ability by the Holy Spirit that he overwhelmingly wins every debate. He doesn't lose. There's no question. There's no draws. He overwhelmingly wins. He presents his argument and their arguments look like, why would anybody want to believe that when you have this? He wins. Now, as often is the case when a person clearly loses a debate but refuses to acknowledge the truth, you have to find some other way to silence your opponent. This is no different than today. It goes on. Joan, are you involved in politics? Have you involved in political debate? What do opponents do when you clearly have all the right reasons and they have nonsense? Name-calling? Joan has never been called names. <laughs> She's laughing because it's been a nasty season. It's getting worse in politics all the time, isn't it? Isn't that correct, Chris? Chris has run for office. Anybody who's run for office knows this is what happens. You can win the debate, but they don't care about debate anymore. It's no longer about truth. It's they name-call. Or they'll pull up the straw man. You know, here's what you believe. It's not what you believe, but they'll say this you believe, and then they shoot something that doesn't really exist to death. Or they will do character assassination with false witnesses. Seems like that went around the last presidential election. Character assassination. And that's what they do here. They can't win the debate, so they're going to assassinate his character by bringing in those who will lie about him. Now, one question may be wondering, why are these people so zealous? And they're all Hellenistic. From my own view, I think part of it is they are striving to gain favor from the native Jews. And if they show even greater zeal for the law, for Moses, for the temple, then maybe some of the stigma of being from elsewhere, from somewhere other than Judea, will be removed and they'll be more accepted by the native Jews. Remember I pointed out last week that the natives did kind of look down on those who were from somewhere else. So this may be one reason why they have this extreme commitment to Moses, the law, and the temple. Well, they are lying opponents. Look at verses 11 through 15, then we'll go back and look at it in a little more depth. Then they secretly induce men to say... Don't know if, how they induced them. Could have maybe paid them. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and they dragged him away and brought him before the council. That's the Sanhedrin. And they put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. With the accusations made by these false witnesses, Stephen is accused of blaspheming Moses and God. Now look at the order they even put this. Moses comes before God in the accusation. They even say he incessantly is saying this. Stephen couldn't have been incessantly saying it. He was proclaiming Christ. So even if he had been doing it, it could not have been something he was constantly doing. The crowds are fickle. Before, they had favor. They were doing the great signs and wonders. Remember that earlier in chapter 5? The apostles doing these great signs and wonders and they had favor with the people. Fearful because sin was taken care of with Ananias and Sapphira, but 
They had favor the people. And they're healing everybody. Stephen's doing the same thing. Remember, it said great signs and wonders. And exactly what he's doing, we don't know. We would have to assume at least it was the same kind of things the apostles were doing. He was doing healing miracles, casting out demons, and he would have had favor with the people. But with these people now falsely accusing him, slandering him, the crowd turns. They no longer support him. And without that support, the religious leaders who already were against this message of Christ have a little more freedom. Remember, they were afraid of the crowds, and so they wouldn't act. Now they don't have to be afraid of the crowds, and so they do act. It says they dragged him away. The word dragged here, there's an increasing violence. Before, when they first grabbed uh, Peter and John, it said they laid hands on them and pulled them away. The next time they grabbed the apostles or they laid hands on them and they took them away. The third time, the apostles are back in the temple preaching and they laid hands on them, but it's very clear in there is that it was basically, please go with us. And the apostles cooperated. There wasn't a violence. It wasn't a, a grabbing and, and dragging. This is, this is violent. They're grabbing him and they are hauling him away. Dragged is the correct word here. Okay? Think of uh, police scenes where they arrest someone and they literally have to drag the guy away. They're just violent with it. It is increasing. They are no longer afraid of the people. Now, Luke makes no comment about how long it takes for the Sanhedrin to assemble. But once they have assembled... And we know it's going to take some time. Stephen is placed in front of them. And remember, the Sanhedrin is set up. It's a semicircle. Stephen would be here, and the Sanhedrin is around them in elevated seats. So they're looking down on him. Meant to intimidate whoever was down there. We are higher than you. We're seated. You've got to stand in front of us. Meant to intimidate. The false witnesses are brought in. And they make these accusations. So these accusations are really the same things that were laid against Christ, aren't they? Specifically is that he is accused of speaking against the temple and the law. In fact, that he was going to destroy the temple and he's going to change the customs they claim came from Moses. Perhaps they thought, hey, it worked against the master. It will work against the followers. But it's the same charges they laid against Christ. Now, what was the truth of those charges? There was no truth. Did Jesus ever say anything about destroying the temple? He would destroy it? No. Actually, what he said, it's in John chapter 2, verse 19. He said, as if they destroy the temple, he would raise it up in three days. John comments, he's actually was talking about his body, not the temple that had been built by Herod. But even missing that point, it was utterly false to report that Jesus had any plans, any inclination, any desire to destroy the temple. In fact, what did Jesus do in the temple? He cleansed it. Remember, in fact, it says he was zealous for God's house. And he got a scourge together and he wasn't, you know, please leave, please leave. He was swinging that thing and people were rushing out of there. The money changers, those selling stuff, because they had taken and filled the court of the Gentiles with people who were exchanging money. Now, why would they do that? It's because when you came in, you had to pay a temple tax. And they said you could only pay with the Jewish money, local, not from somewhere else. So you'd have to exchange it. And they would scrape some off the top in the exchange and they would make money on it. They were sitting in the, the court of the Gentiles and all those who had sacrifices were selling the stuff in the court of the Gentiles. And they had quite a racket because if you came in with a sacrifice from wherever you raised it and it didn't meet the priestly standards, whether it actually met the biblical standards or not is irrelevant, 
Did it meet the priest thing? Your animal's not good enough. You've got to buy one of these that are pre-approved. You're making money on that. They have filled the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus said, this is supposed to be my house of prayer. All nations were to gather there. And Jesus drove them out. Jesus was zealous for the temple. He never blasphemed the temple. Exactly the opposite. But these witnesses are saying is that Jesus said he's going to destroy the temple. Also said that Jesus was going to, uh, speaking against the law. Now, it is true to this sense, Jesus was speaking against their practices, but he never spoke against the law. In fact, what did Jesus say about the law? He said he would fulfill it and that none of it would pass away. Remember over in Matthew 5, uh, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill Exactly the opposite. Instead, he goes on in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, to demonstrate how they had perverted the law. He was simply trying to get them back to where they were supposed to have been. But the accusation is he's going to change. He's speaking against the law. The one point that was true is he was going to change their customs because their customs were wrong. They had perverted the law of Moses. He was seeking to change that. And if you get time, take a look through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You have heard it said, and he tells what the truth is. You do not practice as they do. Do this instead. He was out to change their practice, but he never spoke against the law. Well, they're accusing Stephen of the very same thing. Well, Stephen now is standing before the council. They're seated. And it says they see his face like the face of an angel. It was one of those things. I wish Luke had given me more explanation of what this is talking about. Because as you look through Scripture, you find angels often described, but they're described simply as men. In fact, Hebrews tells us that you might entertain angels unaware. They look just like you and me. You don't know. There's nothing to really make them stand out. However, there are places in Scripture where it describes them as having a bright appearance. Uh, Ezekiel 8.2, Luke 2.9, Acts 12.7. And in Revelation, we'll find the same thing, Revelation 18.1. So the thought here is that Stephen's face probably was glowing much in the same way that Moses' face was glowing after he came down from Mount Sinai after receiving the law. Remember, he had to put a veil over it because it shone so much. And that's probably what's going on here. But even this did not dissuade these men from the evil that was in their hearts. Something is different about this man, and yet it doesn't dissuade them at all. Now, as we move into chapter 7, we find that the priests says, uh, are these things so? Now remember, the Sanhedrin, this council, is also the court. This is essentially the same as if you were in court saying, is, what is your plea? They're going to give him a chance to make his plea and then defend himself. Four accusations against Stephen. First, he has blasphemed Moses. And again, note the order. Moses was more important to them than God. Second, he's blasphemed God. Third, he has spoken against the temple. And fourth, he has spoken against the law. Stephen is going to defend himself against all four accusations. But he's not going to do it the same way you and I might do it. Now, he begins with an introduction to them that is uh, pointing out their joint heritage and shows great respect. Look there at verse 2, the first part. Hear me, brethren and fathers. And that's how he recognizes them. We have a common heritage. We are all Jews. We here are descendants of Abraham. We're family. You're brethren. 
And second, he recognizes clearly the authority that is incumbent upon the elders who sit in the council, the Sanhedrin, and the respect that is to be shown to them, and he calls them fathers. That puts him in a position of submission. I show you respect. We have a common heritage. Stephen then goes on in verse 2 with a defense that is made... It's a Jewish defense. I'm going to have to put it that way. It's a Jewish defense. Jewish defense of the time. We would want to put point, counterpoint. He tells them history. Let me tell you about our history. And he's going to use that history to demonstrate his beliefs on each of these points. As well as demonstrate a failing on the part of the Jewish people consistently over that history, which he will then lead into is this is why he's proclaiming Christ. And this is why they have erred. They're making the same error that has been made throughout their history. It's a Jewish defense. It's not about gaining acquittal. If you and I were probably sitting in such a court, our minds is how do I get out of this alive? Probably, right? We have a judge in our church. Do you ever see someone in front of your bench that on their face it just looks like, how can I get out of this intact, right? You have it from the judge's mouth. This is the way people react, okay? You and I would do the same thing. That's not how Stephen does it. His goal is not acquittal. His goal is to preach the truth, to proclaim the truth historically, resulting finally in a message about Jesus Christ and that they, the Sanhedrin, these brethren fathers needed Jesus Christ themselves. And so he begins recounting their history. The truth about God, the truth about Moses, the truth about law, and the truth about the temple. Now he changes the order. They accuse him first of blasphemy of Moses. He knows who's more important. So first he's going to deal with the truth about God. And that's the end of verse 2 there. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Depart from your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he departed from the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran, and from there, after his father died, removed him to this country in which you are now living. So he just goes right back to the beginning. This is Genesis chapter 11. And here we find, we have the establishment of genealogy, so we get to Terah, his father, Verse 26 said, Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Then verse 31 says, And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, and his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans, that's why he is a Chaldean, in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And then you have chapter 12 and God's covenant with Abraham. The covenant of land, of people, and a, a blessing. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. 
Now, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So that's the first thing he, he goes back to. He goes back to the beginning of the founders of Judaism. It goes back to Abraham. And he states it. I believe, and if you wanted to put it that way, you could put it, the God of glory appeared to our father, our father, not just your father or my father, our father, to all of us, he appeared to him. I believe that. I agree with you. This is our heritage. God has revealed himself and we have a covenant with God that goes back to Abraham, the one that I just read here in Genesis 12. Now, there is a question in the text about at what point was Abraham called. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, Stephen reveals that either God called Abraham twice, once while he's in Ur and once in Haran, or he was called once while in Ur, and that's why they went as far as Haran, and he remained there until his father died and then continued on the journey and ended up in Canaan, what became Israel. There's also a question about the age of Terah at his birth. In uh, Genesis 11:26, it simply says Terah lived 70 years and it says he became the father of three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. It doesn't say how old he was when each boy was born. Now, we would assume since Abram's listed first, he's probably the firstborn, but that doesn't always occur in Jewish genealogies. Usually, the prominent son is the one listed first. And in this case, it probably... Uh, Abraham, though he's the prominent one, is not the oldest. If we look in the text, we find that Abraham's 75 when he leaves Haran. His father's 205, which means his father was 130 at his birth. So that would take care of a, a textual question that comes up. But Stephen's point is simply this. I am with you. I agree with you. We have a covenant that God has given us through Abraham. And then he goes on in verse 5 and points out that Abraham didn't receive the promise. Hebrews 11 tells us about this too. It says, And he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, and yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. This is Genesis 12:7 and 13:15. is this promise. Abraham never gained anything in the land of Canaan. Anything he got there, he bought. He had to buy it. It was going to be to his descendants. But God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be aliens in a foreign land and they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. Whatever nation to which they shall be in, bondage I myself will judge, said God, and after that they will come out and serve me in this place. That's Genesis 15, 13 through 16. So right after repeating the covenant with him, he also went on and said his you're not getting anything here. Your descendants will. But first, there's going to be a period of time, 400 years, your descendants are going to be enslaved because we've got to wait until the Canaanites complete the fruition of their sin, in which case then they'd be judged. Now, it's important for Stephen to put this in here because he's going to have to get to Moses. Why were they in Egypt? It was God's plan. That means it's God's sovereignty. He understood this from the beginning. God had told Abraham this, telling him beforehand what was going to happen. Stephen says, I believe all that. I agree with you. This is the God we have. He is sovereign. Verse 8, And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. This is Genesis 17, 9 through 14. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcision on the eighth day. I agree with you in our traditions. We practice circumcision because it's a sign of our covenant with God. 
Abraham did that. And then Isaac became the father of Jacob, Genesis 25, 21. And Jacob, the father of the 12 patriarchs, Genesis 29 and, and following. And then the patriarchs, verse 9, we're going to get to Joseph now. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and they sold him into Egypt. Now he's concentrating on Abraham and Joseph for particular reasons. It's a recounting of the history of Israel the history of their nation that's beginning, but pointing out two major characters. When you read through Genesis, let's be honest, um, Isaac and Jacob aren't the major characters. Isaac's almost like a blip. And Jacob's major importance is to get to Joseph. There's a lot that goes on with him, but really his major importance is you're going to get to Joseph. And Joseph is this one that has this, this great ministry, even though he's treated horribly, but in preserving people. And that's what he's pointing out. So it's a, very, it's a synopsis of their history, but pointing out these two men of such great faith. Jacob's faith is a little wishy-washy, and so is Isaac's. The covenant goes through them, but Abraham and Joseph are the men of great faith. So he goes on, verse 9, The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph, sold him to Egypt. That's Genesis 37, 4. You remember the story. Joseph, being the son of Rachel, was favored over the sons of Leah. And so, he was spoiled. I don't know how else to put it. He was, he was given everything. The other ones, they had to go out and work and he's favored. His father gives him this coat of many colors. He's getting the presents they aren't. He has this dream. This dream about stars bowing down to him. Wheat sheaves bowing down to him. And they get the point. At some point, they're going to bow down to him. And they go, no way. That's our younger brother. There's no way I'm bowing down to him. You have a younger sibling? Would you want to do that? Of course not. We'd be the same way. So what kind of kid is this? I see siblings looking at each other and say, that's right. Especially the older one looking down at the younger ones. No way. Well, that's where they were at. And so they're jealous of him. If you recall the story, they send uh, Joseph up to find out where his brothers are. He finally finds them and they conspiracy. They're jealous of him. They actually wanted to kill him. Reuben intervenes. Instead, he's thrown into a pit and he's sold as a slave. They make 30 pieces of silver off him. Off he goes to Egypt. In Egypt, he is not treated well. He gets a job in uh, Potiphar's household. It, um, it's blessed beyond all measure. But Potiphar's wife was an evil woman. Accuses him falsely. He's thrown in jail. And he sits in jail. But he becomes in charge of the jail. The jailer doesn't have to do anything because Joseph's doing it. He interprets dreams and he still sits in jail because they were supposed to have told the dreams. Finally, a time comes when, as verse 10 puts it, or verse 9, he sold into Egypt and yet God was with him. And certainly you go back and read the story of Joseph, you can see God is constantly with him despite the horrible things he's going through and rescued him from all of his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Genesis 41 recounts that. He interprets the dream for Pharaoh and tells him his advice is to get a wise man to plan for the famine that is to come. And Pharaoh, wisely, decides if you can interpret this dream, then maybe you're the wisest one to do this, and elevates him. Sold into slavery, he's now second command in Egypt. God was with him. And Stephen is saying, I believe in this God who is sovereign, I believe our history in each of these things. Verse 11, how did this then end up 
the blessing that really came out of it. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, just had been prophesied, and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time, that's Genesis chapter 43, and on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh, that's Genesis 45, and Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. He's their rescuers. Verse 15, And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there passed away he and our fathers. Joseph summed all that up in Genesis 50. They meant it for evil. His brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring about the present result of preserving many people alive. And Stephen points this out. That's the same God that I serve. I know our history just as well as you do, and I believe this history. That's the God I'm talking about. A sovereign God. A sovereign God who can take the worst things that happen and make a blessing. Not just for you, but for those that were even persecuting you. Some have wondered about uh, the figure 75 there in verse 15. Stephen simply following the number that's given in the Septuagint, uh, which calculated the number that actually went back in a different way. The Septuagint counted all of those that went back, including Joseph's grandsons, whereas the Masoretic text did, does not. It doesn't include Joseph's kids. But there they all are. They went down to Egypt. Everything God had said about 400 years, in the land, that's all fulfilled. They come back to Canaan, and it's time. They were moved to Shechem, and they laid the tomb where Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem, and that's where they're buried. I believe in this God. I know this God. He's a sovereign God. It's a brief history of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, with an emphasis on Joseph. And he's simply affirming, I believe in the God who's made this covenant with us, with our people, who has worked even in the midst of adversity. God is sovereign, is the point. Stephen does not blaspheme him. At the same time, Stephen highlights the failure of the patriarchs when they sold Joseph into slavery. I am not a blasphemer, but we go back in our history and guess who was? Our forefathers. They were blasphemers of God. They didn't follow him. They didn't believe in his sovereignty. They were the ones that did it, not me. I believe in this God. That's the truth of what Stephen believes. Then he goes on the truth about Moses, and we'll expand on Moses, the temple, and the law next week, but in brief for this morning. He shows in verses 17 through 36 that he understood Moses and that he believed Moses was the one through whom the law came. And he revered Moses and respected Moses for who he was and what he has done, a unique man chosen by God to bring the law. And then he'll go on in verses 37 through 43 in dealing with the law itself and shows his high respect for the law. But he also goes on and shows that it was their forefathers that continually disobeyed the law. Even when it was being given to Moses, they would not obey it. Right from the beginning, the people would not obey the law. But Stephen says, I am a keeper of the law. I respect Moses, I respect the law he gave. And then in verses 44 through 50, he's going to deal with the temple. Strange thing is about the temple is they had become um, mystical about it. Much as their forefathers had about Solomon's temple, uh, it was destroyed. 
Zerubbabel came back and he rebuilt the temple. It was destroyed. This current temple is the one built by Herod, who's not a Jew. But they're mystical. As long as we got the temple, we're okay. Because God's in the temple. So what Stephen does here is he demonstrates he doesn't blaspheme the temple. But they do because they mistake what the temple's for. They have God confined to an area, to a building. And as he points out in verse 48... The Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? What is not my hand which has made all these things? God doesn't dwell in, in a place. He's beyond all that. He's omnipresent. And yet God has chosen in the New Covenant to dwell in the human heart. To dwell within you. That's part of the new covenant. Next week we'll go into detail, but this is the point that Stephen makes. I have not blasphemed God. I have not blasphemed Moses. I have not blasphemed the law. I have not blasphemed the temple. You have. He's direct about that. We'll see that next week too. But instead of reacting, being cut to the heart, being convicted with, I need to change, we need to repent, as they did in Acts 2, they're going to murder him. These are lessons for us as well. We're going to be accused. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about those who walk in righteousness? How are you going to be treated? What should you expect? You should expect people to even say all manner of against you falsely for his sake. Expect to be lied about. Don't be surprised when it happens that you do everything right and you are lied about. And you know what? You don't even have to be in politics to have that happen. Although if you are in politics, it's going to happen a lot more. Okay, I, I concede that to, to Joan and Chris. You get in the public arena, you're going to, it's going to happen. It happened to Stephen. How will you react? What will you do? Stephen is the example for us. Whenever we feel like we're being picked on, go back and read this chapter. Can I do what Stephen did? Can I be truthful and demonstrate their accusations are false? But here's the truth. I do believe in God. I believe in a sovereign God who saved me. And I believe in Jesus Christ, the one who paid the penalty for my sin, and I believe his promises. And I'm certainly not what I want to be. Someday I will be when I see him. But I'm not what I was either. He is changing me. And the same God that is changing me through Christ can change you. Can you say that in the midst of when someone's lying about you? And then get to the end where Stephen is being stoned to death. And he does the same thing that our our Lord did. He asked God not to hold their sin against them. Can you show that kind of mercy even to those who are cruel to you? You see, when you can, then you'll know the Holy Spirit is working through you and you've yielded yourself to him. That's being full of the Spirit. Letting Jesus Christ live through you. Let him demonstrate it in the character that you exhibit to others. That's the example of Stephen. We'll finish that up next week. But that's the challenge. Are you going to live for yourself? Or are you going to live for God? Stephen chose to live for God. And yes, his life is short. His ministry is brief. But what impact that it had for eternity. Father, we are very grateful again for your word. And Father, what a powerful message in the life of Stephen. And I'm looking forward to finishing off the rest of this message next week. But Father, that we would follow suit, that we would be like this man's example. 
Father, full of grace, full of power, bold in our proclamation of the truth, even when those would rise up against us and slander us. Father, because our lives really do revolve around you. They, the purpose for their existence, the purpose of our being is for your glory. Father, continue to prod us, molding us, shaping us in the image of Christ, that those around us see him in us. In Jesus' name, amen.